Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. And the last time, the message was titled, Love Abandoned. And we looked at the Ephesus church, and it was kind of sad because this was the age of the apostles, you know, up to A.D. 100. A lot of Bible scholars kind of put those dates out there uh, of the church age or the church era. And it didn't take long for people to get lazy, for people to um, kind of pull away from the Lord, to kind of do a religion without God, which is not ever what he wants, whether he saw that in the Old Testament or the New Testament. So Jesus said to the church, you left me, you left your first love. And there could be churches today. Well, as we go through this, we have to look at not only uh, these types of churches that Jesus has to correct, and even today he still has to do that, uh, but also the type of Christian we are. What type of Christian do we want to be? And we'll get to that. But Ephesus left their first love. And you can even see today churches that do amazing things in the community, missional churches, you know. But if they lose their relationship with Jesus, the church is just a social club. It no longer, it ceases to be called the church because Jesus says, I'll take my lampstand from, from you. I'm not in that anymore. Uh, this morning's message is titled The Tale of Two Churches. Yes, and uh, the two churches involved are Smyrna and Pergamos. And I really wanted to fit the two of them in here because you can see such a contrast between these two church ages and types of churches. Again, what type of Christian do we want to be? Where do we want to fall in? I think what's really remarkable, we're looking, um, I don't know, diachronistically, we're looking retrospectively, we're looking backwards to when Jesus started talking about these types of churches uh, and it's really remarkable, this only could be from God, that he goes into incredible detail of things that churches did, good and bad, throughout the last two millennia. So it's pretty fascinating. Um, I, I was going to just do Smyrna, but I really thought the contrast with Pergamos was, was incredible. So I wanted to get them both in there. So we might go a little longer today, but heck, it's a stay-at-home order. What do you got to do in New Jersey anyway? So enjoy your pancakes and your flip-flops and your slippers and... Hang out and enjoy the ride. So we're going to jump in to Revelation 2, and we're going to see this in two parts, two churches. Verse 8, it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, or the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and, and then I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So one attitude is, Smyrna or the persecuted church. And this time period, very interesting, goes from 100 AD to 313 AD. And when we go into Pergamos, I'll tell you why 313, why, why not 300, is extremely significant when it comes to 
church history and the history, what was going on in the Roman government. But I would say this, technically, the church of Smyrna doesn't have an ending date. Again, these are, these are things that Bible scholars have come up with. But if you think about it and you go across the seas, uh, the church, our brothers and sisters that we're going to see in heaven are being persecuted right now in various countries. So they're still the church of Smyrna. I mean, if you say, I want to be a Christian or I'm a Christian in North Korea, you, it's a death sentence or Iran or any of these oppressive countries. Fox's Book of Martyrs is a really good book to read. I have, I have in my office, and it chronicles the persecution of Christians throughout the ages. So 100 to 313, but I would say 100 until the Lord returns. And then even the tribulation saints are going to go through this. So it's, it's a fascinating outside-the-boundaries type of church. And this is one of two churches that received no negative comments by Jesus, no constructive criticism, no negative comments. Um, and it's just amazing because persecution to believers uh, really weeds out the tares. I mean, you're the real deal because you give up everything if you want to be a Christian in places that are persecuted. So verse 8, Jesus said, from the one who was dead and came back to life. Now, this would really be encouraging to Christians who are losing their lives on a regular basis. Jesus is saying, I came back from the dead. I'm quite alive, and I promise the same thing to you. You're going to go through this, but here, let me encourage you. Um, at this point in the Roman history, emperor worship became compulsory. To burn incense, say Caesar is Lord, pay homage, or die, or be arrested, or be thrown into the, the lion's den. Uh, so, you know, you would, the Rome, Rome would give you papers, and you, they could give you a certificate. You said that you paid your homage to the emperor and worshipped him, and you'd be free to do your business, to come and go as you please. Christians refused to do this because they knew that Jesus was the only Lord and the only God. The word Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, which is a sweet-smelling perfume used to embalm dead bodies. Death was always a looming possibility for the Christians. So Jesus took the fear of death and turned it into kind of the beginning you know, he really encouraged them through this. And certainly Christians today who are being persecuted would be encouraged through reading the scripture as well. Verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now, it, it's one thing as Christians that we go through tribulation and we go through poverty. I mean, there were times in, in my life that things were really tough financially and you feel... It's just an emotional thing. You, you kind of feel maybe like a failure. You feel like, you know, you're just not getting any traction in life. And, you know, what I love about the Bible is Jesus not only ministers to our spirit, but he also ministers to our psyche. He knows how people feel when they go through difficult times. So he's ministering to them emotionally as well, which is so cool. You know, I've heard these, uh, sometimes my wife and I very rarely will, Turn, we don't watch a lot of TV, but we'll go on and we'll turn on, I don't know what channel it is, but there's all these televangelists and like these prosperity preachers. And one time she turned to something and I'm like, is this like a joke or is this real? You know, he was saying, if you're a pastor and you have a bicycle, um, you don't have enough faith, you should have a plane. I, I can't make this stuff up. I mean, we actually were laughing, but we also realized how sad it was that people follow this type of teaching. 
It, it's a sad teaching. It's unbiblical. And it basically, they're reinforcing the idea that Christians who go through hard times, if they're poor, if they have health problems, that they're losers. And that's not what Jesus says. So personally, I'd prefer to listen to Jesus than these preachers. The Lord says, I see you. And today he sees you. If you're a faithful believer and you are, you know, trying to make ends meet or you, you lost your job or you're, you know, you're, you're like a little depressed about what's going on. The Lord sees you, you know, stay there, be strong in the faith. Um, the Lord's got your back and, and he wants to encourage you and he wants to reassure you. So poverty and tribulation. Why? Because the Christians who refused to go along to get along with the Roman government and emperor worship were um, forced into unemployment. They were forced into poverty. Rome would harass them. So a lot of their tribulation and poverty was as a direct result of being solid Christians. Interesting, isn't it? Again, the preaching today in America, American Gospel, great documentary. I suggest everybody watch it. It's almost because we're the, the land of plenty that the gospel's being twisted to fit into that idea of Western culture, and it's, it's not real. It's not biblical. Verse 9, he says, But you are rich. Turn with me to Matthew six nineteen through 21. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The church of Smyrna had no physical treasures. They had no temporal treasures. So they were storing up treasures in heaven. And who he was speaking to specifically at that time period They've been in glory for the last 2,000 years. You've got to kind of look at this from the big picture, how God looks at this. Um, even Christians today store up earthly treasures at the expense of heavenly treasures. It's not about how much money you make or how many assets you have, but are we actively seeking to store up those heavenly treasures? So Smyrna got it right. I look at some of these billionaires who were in the news lately. Um, I don't know. They got lucky, fortunate with some business deals and all of a sudden they become billionaires and it's money excessive wealth does weird things to people i mean they have this idea if you listen to them that uh it's a divine almost appointment which it isn't that now that they're billionaires they need they know better these globalists need to tell the rest of us what to do and how to live as if money makes them important but sadly they're deceived uh, they will, when they die, if they have not repented and turned to Christ, they will sp step into eternity where they're separated from all that stuff and, and judgment. So um, we need to pray for everybody. But Jesus says, you're a child of God and you're going through things and you're suffering. He says you're spiritually rich and that's what matters to God in the end. All this stuff is going to burn. It's not going to be around anymore when he remakes everything. Verse 9 can be initially offensive. He says, uh, he says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Now, you have to understand that this could be said of churches today. You also have to understand the culture. Um, it w around this time period, the church was still largely Jewish. 
So there was, the Messiah was Jewish. They started in the synagogues. They moved to a belief in Christ. Um, everything was Jewish. It's almost I can make the parallel if I was to say today that there are some churches that don't follow the Lord's ideology. They don't have a relationship with him, and they actively set out to harm people. You could make the same parallel. It's a church of Satan. It's not of God. It's not of the Lord. And these men, a lot of these men, they did their religious duties, and then they went out and tried to destroy or kill the Christians. They at sometimes were in cahoots with the Roman government to hunt them down. Actually, the Apostle Paul was one of these people before he got saved. And he realized the horrible things he was doing and that it wasn't in the name of God. I think the bottom line behind all of this is in the end, when we stand before God, nobody will be able to hide behind religion. God looks at the heart. He doesn't care about our denomination. He doesn't care about our assets. He looks at the heart. And people can practice religious things all they want. The church did it in the dark ages and hunted people down. Well, they're not saved. I, I, I hate, it's, it's just, it is what it is. You know, the Bible's not politically correct, and some people may be triggered by it, but you, you've got to look at it in context, and it is God's word. You know, God doesn't measure his words before he speaks. He speaks the truth, and sometimes the truth can be painful. So anyone who, you know, even the jihadists, who in the name of God um, have to take out the infidels, that's not from God. And they're going to find out the, the difficult way that when they die, if they haven't repented, they're going to be judged for those very things that they thought they were trying to do to please God. It doesn't work like that. Continuing on, verse 10, he says, Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So, actually, let me jump into 11 first, because he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, understand that the first death and the second death, some people are born twice but only die once. Some people are born once but, but die twice. And what that means is, it's a very interesting thing how in our bodies, in our persons, God has given us the ability to be both physical and both spiritual. Jesus said, in order to see the kingdom of heaven, in John chapter 3, he said, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. We're all born into this world spiritually bankrupt. But there has to come a point in time in everyone's life where they, they look up to God and, and they're drawn uh, by him. They, they don't resist it. And, and I resisted it many times when I was young, but eventually, obviously, I came to the, the truth of who Christ is, that he died for my sins, and I was born again a second time. So I will die once physically, but I won't experience the second death. The second death is a person who shuns God all their life and doesn't receive his way of salvation. They die physically, and then they also die spiritually, where they, unfortunately, they are conscious for all of eternity, but they're in judgment. So Jesus said, again, everything is, is, is kind of centered around death, sadly enough, because the Christians were experiencing it so much. But he said, the second death won't hurt you. He tried to use all these different angles and pictures to help them understand that when they stepped into eternity, it was like less than a split second. They were going to be in the Lord's presence, and they were going to be in 
in glory for all of eternity, which is really a neat thing. It's encouraging. And sometimes when we have a lot in this world, we don't see the big picture. Um, So verse 10, it's an interesting statement. He says that you will suffer. Some of you will suffer. You'll be put in prison, but pretty much don't be afraid. I I see it. I'm with you. um, And you're going to be tested. And again, the false teachers teach that if you have enough faith, God will always deliver you from bad circumstances. Now, in this case, and this is the problem with these narrow-minded theologies, they don't work, because God was going to deliver the believers as they were going through, but he wasn't going to deliver them from. Now, personally, if you ask my opinion, I will say to you that um, I would always love to be delivered from bad circumstances, but It's just not the way it works. However, when I've gone through circumstances, I know the Lord has been with me. The significance of 10 days. Um, 10 days could just be 10 days. Uh, Sometimes people read this and they say, well, it could be 10 years of Roman persecution, which if you look at the Roman Empire, you did kind of see that. They said 10 days meant 10 Roman emperors of persecution. Um, So there's a lot of things, but... 10 days could just mean 10 days. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Uh, I like to look at things from a big picture standpoint. 10 days was a finite period of time. And that's comforting. He basically said to them, you will struggle, but you will be rewarded. And I don't know about you, but if I know I'm going to go through a difficult time, if I'm given a heads up, I feel better about it. So I'm like, oh, I got to go through it, but at least I got a little tip off, so to speak. You know, the night before my earthly father passed away, I was driving home from work and I was praying in my car and the Lord revealed to me that my father was going to, was going to pass away. And he did that next morning, my brother called me and said, they're doing CPR on dad. And I did his funeral. Like, I'm like, I had it under, under control because the Lord tipped me off. And that's a wonderful thing when the Lord does share those things with us. And he certainly did that with these Christians. He's like, this is going to happen. But remember, it's the Lord speaking. I'm with you. I'm with you through all of these trials. Emotionally, sometimes we think that God has abandoned us, but here he's saying, no, I haven't abandoned you. Verse 10, he says, don't fear. Why? Because emotionally we have to be reminded not to fear. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't worry. You don't need to worry. In Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul says, don't grow weary doing good. Why? Because sometimes we do grow weary. You know, some teachings say, well, you know, there's, there's nothing in here about how you feel and your emotions. And it's actually not true. Um, the Lord does a lot of ministering to us emotionally uh, through the scripture, not just spiritually. And verse 10 He said, the devil is going to throw you into prison. Basically, he was saying that there was a force that was behind this. And obviously, the satanic activity was behind trying to destroy the early church. Well, it didn't work. And verse 10, he goes, you know, if you overcome, you're going to get the crown of life. The crown is interesting because there's different types of crowns in the Bible. In the Greek, and I know of two of them, there could be more. There's Stephanos versus diadema, where we get the word diadem in the English. And Stephanos was an athlete who 
ran a race. The Apostle Paul speaks about that. And when they were victorious, they would give them this wreath, this Stephanus type of crown. However, a potentate or a king, right? Jesus, when we hear about his crowns, they're diadema. Now, in English, it's the same word crown. That's why I like to go into the Greek, because it gives us a little bit of a, a picture. So the Lord is saying that you're my winners, you know, you've run the race. Even if you lose your life in a humiliating way, you're my winners. And that's important because the, our culture, American culture, teaches us differently. We're all under pressure to succeed. We're all under pressure to get those promotions. You know, we're under so much pressure. And it's interesting here, we're all being ordered to stay at home. Everybody's kind of had to pump the brakes and cool their jets. But it's an interesting thing on how to reflect on what we think is important in our life or, you know, will the things that we used to do, will they even come back? Will they last forever? So God is saying, if you're faithful to me to the end, you're my winner. And you get into the kingdom. I don't know if you have that, um, Stephanos. I don't know how it works. But as we go further in Revelation, you're going to see, I think it was the elders that take their crowns off. They bow down and they, they throw it at the Lord's feet. So some people do have crowns while they're in there. It's pretty neat. So the crown of life, it, it's being faithful to the end. Some make a little bit more of it, and that's fine. But um, I like the personal aspect of the Lord giving us a crown. I don't know, when you play sports, like if you win, you get a trophy, and you know the feeling, baseball or you know gymnastics, it's just such a good feeling. It's like acceptance. It's like you know, you're, you're being... Um, you're being seen. You're being rewarded for all the work and, and p- you put into it. Imagine the Lord giving you a crown. I mean, this is God. This isn't a judge. This isn't an earthly thing. It's not a sport. It's God. So very exciting, very encouraging to those believers. Short and sweet, um, the church of Smyrna. Smyrna was tested. It was purified. And this is important because Smyrna was purified Smyrna had this foundation, that spiritual foundation, because the next three churches are horrible. <laughs> I mean, there was some good people in it, and there was some people doing good, but they really went off the rails as far as churches go, and then it gets rained back in again. So we're going to look at the different periods of church history, but Smyrna really builds this foundation, this spiritual foundation, and that was necessary because the Lord could always point back to Smyrna, and it was held up as an example. Again, nothing negative said about Smyrna. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're being faithful to the Lord, no matter what's going on in your life, you're God's winner. So moving on, verse 12. This is the church of Pergamos. He says, And to the angel, or the messenger of the church in Pergamos, write, These things says he who has this sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. And this is the Lord speaking. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We just saw this um, a few Sundays ago. Which thing I hate, he didn't say he hated the Nicolaitans, 
but he hated their doctrine and their deeds, as we saw before. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. God's desire is that there's repentance and redemption. He's, he's trying to save this church. There's corruption getting inside of it. But ultimately, he will separate the sheep from the goats. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So two out of two is the church of Pergamos, which is widely called the compromising church. That's where it starts. The little bit of compromise that started coming in and more was coming in. We'll, we'll talk about where, the, where it came from. Uh, this goes from 313 A.D. to 538 A.D. And 538 is also a significant date, which I'll get to next Sunday. This is the church under Constantine, the emperor, which he was co-regent with two other uh, political figures and Throughout Constantine's reign, supposedly he had a vision and he became a Christian and he started now really getting involved as an emperor into the affairs of the church. And we're going to see how that kind of didn't go very well over time. But if you look at what, what Pastor Joe, what is 313? What is significant? Well, 311 was the 311 AD was the edict of toleration. You know, leave the Christians alone. No more persecution, you know, let them have their rights. It's good. 313 was, was the Edict of Milan, which really mainstreamed Christianity into the Roman Empire. But understand that it wasn't going to come without a price. The rest of Rome and their polytheism and their pagan pantheons were not just going to accept this easily, even from an emperor. There had to be some compromising going on. Now, when, you, when you're a married couple and you have an argument, compromise is good. But there's also a bad form of compromise. And when you're a church and you allow demonic doctrine into your church and what you're preaching, that becomes a problem. So the church was willing. Listen, the church was tired of persecution. And, and a carrot was held out, right? Satan used a stick with Smyrna, but he used a carrot um, with, with Pergamos. And in order for the church to end its suffering and tribulation, they had to give a little, right? So the devil changes his strategy because he sees that God is so approving of Smyrna that he tries a different thing. Instead of attacking them from the outside, let me go and infiltrate. And I tell you, from my experience, that's a, a much more horrible result for any church than somebody attacking the church from the outside. And we'll talk about that, why it was so bad. Verse 13, he says that the church was in the area where Satan dwelled and where his throne was. And we know that the Apostle Paul says that Satan is the god of this world, this ungodly world. Now, it doesn't mean that unbelievers are bad people. It doesn't mean we, we always try to win the unsaved. But this is a world system that's poised against the things of God. And a satanic roots are behind it. So again, I know plenty of unsaved people that are wonderful people. They're not bad people. We want them to come into the fold. We want them to know God as their savior. But this collectively is this world system, which we're going to talk about later. The secular world opposed to God. 
uh, secular humanism opposed to God. Psalm 2, right? The kings of the earth, you know, all the important people of the earth, how they rage against the things of God because they want God's creation. They want to do it their way. They don't want any interference from God. Isn't that interesting? They'll take his creation and they want him to go away while they use that creation. Pergamos was a cosmopolitan city, much like D.C. and other cities, and Christians were trying to fit in. They were trying to go along. However, we as Christians, and we can build bridges. I love building bridges with the unsaved all the time. You know, I, I still have people that I know that are not, by their own admission, Christians, and, and some of them are watching right now because they told me that they were. Um, we love them, but... You know, in, in this world, we're supposed to build bridges and, and bring people to Jesus, but we're also not to go along with the culture when the culture is caustic spiritually. And that's what was going on. I'm setting you up for understanding the big picture that happened in Pergamos. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to have some nuances, some differences from our unsaved neighbor. They're supposed to be drawn to the light that we shine of Jesus Christ, we're not supposed to be drawn to ungodly behavior. So you see these, this compromising going on, and the same thing happens today. The word Pergamos has a few words in its semantic range, but a few words that I found interesting in Greek, Pergamos means tower or castle. <laughs> interesting. It reminds me of the, to- the Tower of Babel, you know, where humanity comes together to reach heaven, but without God. Again, they want his creation. They want all his benefits, but they don't want him telling them what to do. So they, the, the believers wanted to be fortified against the tribulation that they were dealing with. The city had a form of government worship. Government worship. You know, uh, <laughs> today I see even Christians who just go along with everything that the culture says. And it's, it's a shame. I have to digress here for a moment. It's whatever they see on the news, they parrot. Whatever they hear, they parrot. You know, I, I have to laugh because the Babylon Bee, most of you know, they're a satirical, it's satire. It's, a, it's, a, it's funny, it's satire, it's not real. But somebody over there thinks the way I think, and they said... That government, and again, this isn't real, government has issued, issued an order that if you don't want to get sick, you need to jump off the bridge. Well, you know what that leads to, right? So they said millions of people around the world are jumping off the bridge because government told them to do so. Folks, I'm all for protecting, I'm all for quarantining, I'm all for flattening the curve, but some of this stuff is getting ridiculous. You know, um, and I don't have anything against these people, but Dr. Fauci has almost become a rock star. He's like, some people practically worship this guy, and they have to hear every word out of his mouth. He was wrong in January. He said this wasn't going to affect us. I saw it on video. And again, I got nothing against the guy. Now it seems he's overcompensating. Dr. Burke seems like a really lovely lady. Um, the models were wrong, drastically wrong. You know, uh, Fauci said that I don't know if handshaking will ever come back again. Oh, man, I'm, ha- I'm shaking hands. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, if you, he says, if you, I'm watching these videos. He's like, if you go out on a date, you should sit 10 feet apart and you should put masks on. On a date? 
I don't want to talk about what the obvious is, but <laughs> so um, can you give somebody a peck on the cheek? I mean, so you, you're starting to, and it's, it's just not, you know, don't wear a mask, then wear a mask, but don't wear the good masks because they're in short supply. But the masks that aren't that good don't really do a good job. You know, it's just put your hands on your head, Simon says, put your hands on your waist, put your hands in the air, put your hands down, Simon didn't say. Folks, these people are wonderful people, they're experts, but they're not God. And Christians have to, you know, we're seeing a lot of civil liberties that are being trampled on because people, including Christians, want to just give government all this power and not say anything, not push back, not have critical thinking. And some of the things that are happening in the United States are kind of creepy as we speak. Well, I will say that there was a Kansas judge who smacked down one of the, well, the governor. And you're starting to see now it going through the courts. And the courts are saying, you guys can't do this. You know, people don't lose their civil civil liberties because there's a pandemic. There's got to be a balance here. So government worship, right? Everything I see on TV, I believe. That's really not who we're supposed to be as Christians. Leviticus 13, the laws of the quarantine... You didn't quarantine the whole village. You quarantined the, those that were suspected, those that were sick. There were laws about quarantining. Yeah, it did come from the Bible, but people are throwing memes out there that have nothing to do with, with biblical accuracy. You know, those at risk. But you didn't, you know, for when there's a rat in the village, you didn't napalm the whole village. I mean, this, we're starting to see some of that. And the social costs... I've been talking to pastors and such are increasing exponentially. Some of this stuff has to be weighed out. So do we believe everything we see on TV? Do we check our mind at the door? We shouldn't do that in church either. If I'm saying something, you got this Bible's here. You know, you, Christine's putting up the scripture underneath the pulpit when I, when I go to the scripture. And that's a good thing. You know, critical thinking is important versus groupthink. So just kind of throwing that out there. Are Christians more influenced by the culture than God's word? Because this type of behavior in Pergamos was the stain on church history. We're called to be light and salt, not to conform to everything and compromise with everything. So these are the things we have to look at. Antipas was a faithful Christian that they would have known. And he's one of these, I don't know, people say they call them unsung heroes. Antipas was punished by the Roman government because he was one of those people in that time period that didn't go along with some of the bad things that the other believers were going along with. He stood his ground, and he was punished for it by the Roman government. He refused to compromise. You know, the question is, are we like Antipas, or are we like most everybody else in the Church of Pergamos? Even in the worst churches and denominations, there still are faithful believers. Again, is that, is that what we want to be? Do we want to be Antipas? Or do we want to be just your average run-of-the-mill run person who went to Pergamos? Verse 13, they didn't deny his name. They had works, but some had egregious practices, and he was going to cut them off. Works don't save. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have there those in that church who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So verse 
14, there was a serious problem. This is an interesting story. In the Bible, you would have good prophets that were good throughout, and then you would have bad prophets, false prophets, who, you know, it was for money or other things. This is a weird situation in Numbers 22 through 25 where Balaam was actually a good prophet who turns bad. He was a prophet of God. And there was a king of the Moabites named Balak, Balaam and Balak. And Balak kept trying to get Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And of course, God would go to Balaam and say, listen, that guy's, he's no good. I'm not going to curse the children of Israel. But they kept tempting Balaam with money. And probably the funniest part of this whole thing was Balaam is on his way on his faithful she-donkey to go see the king. And uh, the angel of the Lord appears with a sword. Well, dum-dum Balaam can't see the angel of the Lord, but the donkey can. So the donkey keeps trying to rear up and back up, and he crushes Balaam's foot. And Balaam, you know, whips his donkey, and the donkey t- says, what are you doing? You know what I'm saying? There's this funny, de- Balaam is so deceived that he doesn't even realize this donkey is talking to him. The bottom line is, he keeps playing with this whole thing with, with King Balak. And eventually he says to Balak, listen, I can't curse the children of Israel. However, (laughs) plan B, if you entice them, Satan getting on the inside, right? You can get them to sin so egregiously that God will do it because they brought it on. And he, what a sick, twisted idea. We're going to talk about how this gets in the church. And that's what happened. And there was a horrible situation that took place and lives were lost. Uh, and that is how, you know, Balaam's end wasn't good. But that's how he got Balak to get the children of Israel to hurt themselves instead of him hurting them directly or having God strike them down without them doing anything. That being said, what's a modern day parallel? Remember, Balaam had discussions with the living God. And of course, he was rebuked and chastised and probably his end wasn't well. But those were the title in the church. They could be a priest. They could be a pastor. They could be an evangelist. They could be uh, a preacher, somebody with the title of bishop or prophet, trying to destroy their own congregation or their own followers from the inside, because they're inside. They do it either for money, for power, popularity, or all three. So infiltrated church leaders, Balaam, bought by the world, Balak, to get believers to harm themselves and estrange themselves from God. Pretty interesting. Um, You can see some in the emerging, emergent churches, seeker-friendly churches, watering down God's word. Well, how does that get and I'm, I've been very critical. I mean, there's some awesome churches around us, great churches, great ministries on TV. But then there's those that water down the word of God. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you'll follow my word. So how does watering down the word of God or subtly changing the meaning? What happens is the believer lives by a code that is really alienated from God. And they don't really love Jesus because they don't even know what the word says or what they should be doing or what they should be thinking because that leader slowly helped to, to, to estrange them from God by watering down the word. The signs and wonders only um, movement. 
you know, listen, miracles are great. They still exist. Gifts of the Spirit still exist. But signs and wonders only without the word to balance it and to define it. What that's going to do, folks, is going to set the stage for when the Satan, the Antichrist, the globalist, and the false prophet or the ecumenical leader, when the three of those guys get together, the false prophet is going to use signs and wonders too. Remember, in Egypt, Pharaoh's magicians could also do miracles. Moses did a great sign, and then Pharaoh, or vice versa, Pharaoh's people did the sign, and Moses' serpent ate theirs. But to many people watching that, they would think, well, maybe Pharaoh's a god. So this is the problem with the signs and wonders only movement. With no word, you just look at, you look at something miraculous. And we're going to see later on in Revelation that this demonic leader who claims to be a religious man is going to do signs and wonders. And many people who are religious are going to follow it. Idolatry. So we're talking about idolatry. We're talking about three things here. We're talking about the children of Israel, Numbers 22 through 25. We're talking about the church of Pergamos, and we're talking about today. So idolatry. The children of Israel were enticed through orgies and other things to do uh, idolatry. That was one of the things that they did. In Pergamos, very interesting. The Roman Empire, and you can still see some of these statues, had these statues. All the men, of course, are incredibly muscular. All the women are incredibly beautiful. And they're stone or metal. And what would happen is they would name those statues, Jupiter or Zeus or Hera or Aphrodite. Part of the compromise, this is a fact, you can look it up, is when the church started marrying or um, getting infiltrated by the world in the Roman Empire, They just changed the names. So the statue of Zeus could have been Jesus. The statue of Aphrodite, Aphrodite was turned to Mary. And the Christians would bow down and worship those statues. And they would say, no, I I believe in Jesus and, and Mary and Mark and Luke. But they started to compromise. Right in Exodus in the Ten Commandments, God says, don't make a graven image of anything in heaven or in the earth below or under the earth and bow down and worship it. God was saying, don't even make a statue of me. But people still did it. And people still do it today because they don't know enough about the word not to do it. And these things are subtle because the heart is right. No, that's a, that's a statue of the apostle Paul. And I'm, I need to pray and I need to, you know, kiss his feet or these are the things that happen. Listen, by the end of this book, everyone's going to be offended because there's, even in our own denomination in Calvary Chapel, there are people that do things that God says don't do. So it's coming around for everyone, Protestants, the Catholics, the evangelicals. Ultimately, we have to be concerned about what God says and not what our denomination teaches us. Very important. Sexual immorality. Children of Israel. Well, we talked about that. Pergamos. They were relaxed in their being on guard to sexual perversions because there were markets, there were um, uh, houses of prostitution, there were things that were perfectly legal in the Roman government. And some of the stuff infected the church of Pergamos. Today, Christians, uh, I hear sometimes they spout more secular humanism than the word. You know, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5 
of mental disorders. There's supposedly a DSM-6 coming out, but here's the interesting thing about the mental health community. They, they do argue, they debate. And when these DSMs keep coming out, they start to say, well, well, that's not a, a, a deviancy anymore. That's accept, we accept it. So let's, so basically the culture is dictating, not all the time, but what is uh, uh, an aberration in thought in human beings. So in the DSM-5, there were some groups, more uh, traditional groups that mental health community had degrees that said, and I'll show you the articles, this is crazy. How could this be normal? It's not normal. But this is the world. People have degrees. It doesn't make them gods. You know, ultimately, God says what's right and wrong. There's a movement, and it's, it sounds actually, some people might snicker, but it, it's not a joke. Um, human relationships with animals. This happens in other countries. We still have laws against it. A pedophilia. Deviants want to lower the age of an adult. In some countries in Europe, there's one country that it's down to 12. So at 12 years old, you're now an adult. So some pervert, and I still use those words, can mess with you and say, oh, it was consensual. This is what's going on in our culture. Believe me, if the DSM goes further enough along, people are starting to say, well, they can't help it. They just are attracted to younger people. So this is why it's more important to know our word. I can back all this stuff. with. I have articles in my office. I have facts. I can back all these. I'm not just throwing, pulling things out of the air. These are the things I've studied over the years. And there's some very well-known groups who are pushing for these things. It's pretty sick. Pergamos or Smyrna? Pergamos or the word? The bottom line is that how does it get into the church? It gets into the church through some charismatic preachers, some on TV, some in person, and they're so charismatic that people will accept some of the things they say. That's Pergamos. Verse 15, he says, Thus you also hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. This is interesting because Ephesus, even though they did wrong, they, they rejected Nicolaity. Two churches later, they're accepting Nicolaity, and we talked about this. This is a... The Roman Empire started to get into the church. The Roman system became part of the church, and the Roman system was a pagan system. And the Romans had uh, ultra-authoritarian leaders, so the church started adopting that. That's the Nicolaity. Um, Christianity, yes, they had the apostles, they had the bishops, but these were positions to help organize the local churches and the confederation of churches. This wasn't for bishops to go around with an iron fist telling the churches what to do. But Pergamos, and we'll see Thyatira, started adopting this hierarchy, this ultra-iron-fisted authoritarian way, when instead of Christians being brothers and sisters, they had to worry about what some of these leaders were dictating to them. We're going to get into that as we move further in through the Roman Empire. We're going to see uh, a parallel uh, between how the church sort of evolved, these organizations, and how the Roman Empire evolved. And you're going to see the Roman Empire got into these churches even after Rome officially was defunct. It still lived in the church. That's pretty awful. So when you see the detail that Jesus gives, you're going to be like, wow, how could anybody know that in the first century? This has to be from God. 
verse 16. He says, repent. And this, this stuff's heavy, isn't it? Because when we start going into the emperors and, and the, the edicts and stuff, you know, a little, little early uh, European history lesson, it's fascinating, but it's, it's thick, it's heavy. Um, so I hope you had your eggs and your pancakes and your coffee, and we're, we're still going. We've got a little bit more to go. Verse 16, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them, the ones who are practicing that, with the sword of my mouth. And we're going to talk about what his sword is. But Jesus said, I will separate the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, and my sword will cut off things that are not of me. Right? Now, the true church, the ecclesia, the body of believers, is, is pure because it's all those that God knows that have accepted him. But within the organization, there's a difference of the church, the organization. There, there is tares. There are goats along with the sheep and along with the wheat. So Jesus is saying them. He's speaking to the church, but he's saying them. You need to deal with that group. Verse 17, to those who must overcome, emphasis mine, three things will be given, a hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name on that stone. And what are they? Jesus in John 6 referred to himself as the bread of life and the manna or the bread from heaven. Jesus also reserved himself for those that rejected idolatry, but he was hidden in what way? He was really hidden from the Roman world, and he's hidden from our ungodly world. They don't know him. They don't understand him. They've seen Jesus saves. They've seen crosses. They don't really know him, though. But they can know him if they want to. It's not a secret club. The white stone. Now, this was interesting because this is where the word blackballed comes from. Some of the words we have in our culture come from things that have happened many years ago. So if you were, uh, they were adjudicating a case in court, there'd be a white stone and a black stone, depending on what they revealed about your case would determine if you were exonerated or if you were guilty. Interestingly enough, guilds and associations, they did the same thing. You know, they would have these kind of, these uh, procedures and is, is Joe going to be accepted into the Carpenter's Guild? You know, they'd have a white stone or a black stone. I'm pretty good at wood. I think they should accept me. Um, just kidding. <laughs> so, but the white stone, Jesus, Jesus helped them to understand things that they had already been experiencing in the culture. Jesus said, by you getting a white stone means not only you're not guilty or exonerated by, the, by Jesus' blood on the cross, but he's also accepted you. And that's a great thing. As we go through this whole uh, sermon today, Jesus says, I see you. He says, don't fear, I'm with you. He also says, I accepted you. You're going to get a crown. You know, I'm going to put it on your head, maybe figuratively or maybe literally. So you have the, the hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name. This is interesting, on that stone. Whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, when someone chose to follow God, he would often give them a new name. Jesus did this with his disciples, too. It, it indicated he had a relationship with them, this new name. And folks, I believe when I get to heaven, I don't think God's going to call me Joe. I think he's got a new name for me. I'm actually getting tired of my name. It's so common. So I'm looking forward to seeing what my new name is. You know what I'm saying? Um, the stone of acceptance with a pet name or a hypochorism, <laughs> sort of the same thing. You know, it's an affectionate name that God is going to give us that will we'll be known by that. You know, my parents named me. Some people can't stand their names. They don't know where their parents got their name from. So the good news is if you're a believer, 
in heaven, you're not going to have that name anymore. <laughs> and it just, what this indicates is a closeness between God and his people. So whether we go through the one church or the other, we're just seeing this closeness, this relationship. So I'll leave it with this, a tale of two churches. I, I got to be honest with you, in the flesh, who wants to be persecuted? However, they were so accepted by the Lord. They were, they, they were so purified. They, they, they were monolithic, right? In Pergamos, there were factions. There was the ones who were trying to do the right thing and the ones who were doing really crazy stuff that God said, they've got to stop. But Smyrna was a monolith. It was, it was through and through the same for the most part. And that's what persecution does. This type of church, Pergamos, either even today, won't teach revelation, will water down revelation, or teach it but won't live it. I want to leave you with one more thing. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Because Jesus speaks about this sword, right? Verse 16, he says it, uh, verse 12, uh, the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 16, he says, repent, or I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Hebrews four twelve. He says, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature, not one creature on this planet, hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him who we must give an account. The Lord will take the organization of the church at some point and he will do some separating. You know, when you prepare a meal or you prepare, I don't know, pork, whatever, shoulder, you know, you cut what you don't want. You cut what you think is, will make you sick or is not good for your diet, and you will keep what's good. The sword of the Lord does something similar but very different in spiritual sense. The Lord will make the cutting and decide who is the true and who is the make-believer. Now, Jesus tells us not to judge because we don't have his discernment. He's God. We should not judge. We should just love people. We should lead them to the cross. We should want them to be saved. We should do everything we can to help them get there. But we shouldn't judge because we don't have the abilities of divinity that he has. However, he will judge the compromising church eventually we'll see next Sunday leads to the corrupt church and it's a slippery slope. It's slow, but it, it moves like the frog who eventually boils in the pot of water. Tale of two churches. Which one do we want to be? And more importantly, which type of Christian do we want to be? Let's pray. You've been listening to to every generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.